Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Thank you for tuning into the second episode of Money on the Move. I am Faisal Khan. And I'm Malini Kanan. And in this episode, we examine some of the fundamentals of the money transfer industry. We received some tremendous feedback from our non-industry listeners on the previous pilot episode podcast, and they said they'd like us to cover a little bit more around the industry basics and terminology. Thank you for your feedback and keep it coming. So to get things started, is the money transfer industry really a $600 billion annual industry? You'll hear this figure get quoted quite often, but where does the 600 really come from? These figures come from World Bank, which is currently the largest source of remittances. The World Bank estimates that in 2017, all remittances, including remittances flowing to developed countries, would be approximately 596 billion or 600 billions if you want to round it up. So, Malani, what do you think about this number? Well, this is really interesting. You know, you see this number quoted all the time in articles everywhere. um, And now it's just become the sort of proxy number for estimating the size of this industry. But when you really deep dive into it and you look at how the World Bank actually comes up with these numbers, uh, there's a couple of things that um, we really need to keep in mind before we use them to estimate the size of the industry. So for starters, the World Bank comes up with these numbers by using a combination of the migrant stocks that they get from the UN population division and some balance of payments information that they get from the IMF. Now, when you look at the World Bank today, it is the biggest resource when it comes to um, providing any kind of remittance information. But they caveat every time that they publish this, there's a couple of things that you need to keep in mind. The migrant stocks, for example, the numbers that they use to tell you how many migrants are of a country A are in country B and hence sending money from country B to country A, these migrant stocks numbers are not always the most current estimates. Think of it a bit like the census numbers in a way, where you have, you know, the census taken a couple of years ago and people are estimating what the population could be today. A similar sort of approximation is made for the migrant stock numbers as well. And the real challenge here, even more than that, is it's something we all know within the industry is that there's a lot of illegal migration, a lot of people who are on a refugee status, a lot of people who are not necessarily included in this migrant number. Um, I think especially when you look at numbers for Africa, you know, the 
actual migrant population is severely underrepresented. And I believe that's a lot. I think it's it's similar even when you look at South Asia. Um, I don't know if you have any comments about this, but I, I think this is sort of a global problem in that sense when migrant statistics are reported. I agree. And, you know, I feel that the, the World Bank is doing a pretty good job, but it's an estimated, it's an estimation nonetheless. You know, for example, uh, the numbers are skewed in many ways, and I'll tell you why. There is, you know, Indian Pakistan, and everyone knows about Indian Pakistan rivalry and so forth, but somehow there is a mistake in these numbers that has never been corrected in all the 20 years that they've been reported. And do you know what that is? Somehow it shows that four and a half billion dollars goes from Pakistan to India. Now, anyone would know that that is not correct. You know, four and a half dollars don't go from Pakistan to India, let alone four and a half billion dollars. Why this anomaly has not been corrected, no one knows. It got so political that in the national assemblies of both the countries, this question was raised. Is Pakistan funding something in India? And in Pakistan, was it, why are we sending money to India, etc.? But the fact of the matter is, this number just doesn't exist. It just and, and who reports it? The State Bank of Pakistan doesn't report it. The Reserve Bank of India doesn't report it. So where does the World Bank get its number from? You know what the answer is? Even they don't know. So the, yeah. these numbers have to be taken with a, you know, with, 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 you have to be careful when you look at these numbers. And more importantly, I feel that we need to come up with a list of countries that, you know, are certified that these are the accurate numbers that they put out. For example, India doesn't put out its numbers publicly. Bangladesh does, Pakistan does, Nigeria does, Kenya does, Vietnam does and doesn't, you know. So you have to look at who's putting out the information publicly and what information is being reported to the World Bank. In many cases, the remittance initiatives or the departments for remittances in those countries are reporting the world, this uh, data back to the World Bank. Is it being massaged for purposes of glorifying remittances in each country for purposes of, you know, whatever? No one knows. If, for example, Bangladesh today says, you know what, I'm going to top Pakistan. I'm going to show that we received $2 billion of remittances more just from the Middle East, just to make Pakistan feel bad. Guess what? There's no way for anyone else to verify that, and they can do that. And suddenly, the United Arab Emirates will feel that, oh my God, there are a lot more Bengalis sending money back home because they just had a, a an uptick of $2 billion. Where did, these, where, did, where did these additional people come from? So it starts all sorts of investigations, and it opens up more, you know, more parentheses than, than you're closing and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, the numbers are not an exact science, and they continue to uh, be debated and, in many cases, be contested that if they're even accurate at all or not. Right. right. As you mentioned, I think um, when it comes to this balance of payments figure, uh, it has to be self-reported by the country. Um, and what what the IMF does, and, and also something that the World Bank verifies as part of the process, is to see that the amount that the sender country is claiming to send to a particular recipient country um, is the same as what the recipient country reports is what the inward flow um, that they're receiving from the sender country. So they have almost a, a matrix of all the countries in the world 
one against the other as a sender and a receiver, and you can access all of this information, but they will be the first to caveat that these numbers don't always line up. Um, what sender countries often report that they're sending to a particular recipient country, it's not necessarily what the recipient country reports as having received. Um, and then there are countries, like you mentioned, altogether that don't make this information public. Um, and of course, in that you have a couple of um, countries that, like Zimbabwe and Cuba, which are complete black boxes till date um, for the remittance industry in that sense. I'll give you another example. Um, you know, and again, I can give it from Pakistan because I know of this example extremely well. Uh, I am led to believe that Bangladesh, Vietnam and Philippines follow the same example. And now even Nigeria and Kenya are following the same example. If a freelancer is working, uh, you know, he, makes a, he or she makes a logo for someone and earns $500 and they're on Payneer and they remit those $500 back in, the way the systems are structured, they're as such so that, you know, it's Faisal Khan, you know, which has a freelancer account in the UK, remitting $500 back to me, even though I'm physically based in Pakistan. I've never left Pakistan. I've never gone outside. I just, just happened to design a logo for someone and the payment looks like it's coming from my account in the UK back to me because that's how my service providers are set up. Those transactions are essentially business transactions, but because there's a huge dearth for the, and the need and the requirement to have foreign exchange come in, they're treated in remittances. So a lot of commercial payments or freelancer payments and coding payments and other business payments are being reported in the remittance businesses. Why? Because remittance is itself now you know very hotly debated as to what the definition is is it migration but what if you do freelance work what is that you know but the government doesn't want to tax it they want it to give an incentive so that people don't keep their money outside and that money that's then you know in order for it to be tax free they're treated as remittances so you know you have to look at some of the nuances in in how the information is being reported else um I feel it's time that we have a version two of these numbers because these numbers don't do justice anymore. So actually, uh, Faisal, you're, you're absolutely right that even when the World Bank classifies personal remittances, it doesn't just include the personal transfers that we have in mind when we think of the remittance, ex classic remittance example, but it's also compensation of employees. Um, and it could be the example you mentioned where um, it's you working on a marketplace model, or it could be even um, the mass payouts example where a corporate is paying out employees in other parts of the world. Um, so they, they would sort of use this figure minus the taxes and social contribution, et cetera, um, and treat that as a remittance in certain cases, just to sort of bolster that number up a bit. Um, so all of this leads to uh, this figure from the World Bank, the best proxy that we have at the moment, not quite being accurate size of the industry. But another important thing that this doesn't capture and something I wanted to talk to you about, something um, I know is, is a big question mark for the industry is what about the informal remittance or informal money transfer system, the Havala system, as we call it in some parts of the world? What percentage do you think is excluded from the remittance market um, that goes flows through these informal channels? And could you give us an example of some of these um, ways that these transactions occur today? So it's it's very interesting question, the Hawala question. You know, I've 
tried to go to every city in the world where I visit and I do a money transfer. Um, and have I been able to do an informal money transfer even in the most of respected you know, geographies like Paris or Copenhagen or Stockholm? Or The answer is yes, always yes. You'd be surprised how many people, even in these respected countries, will do a money transfer with no documents, informal, provided the right number of euros or dollars are presented as a fee. I have yet to come across a morally or ethically inclined person that says, nope, sorry, can't do this transaction. I feel no one has a true sense of how big the market is. No one. Uh, if you look at the international money transfer market, when you talk about international and not remittances, but money transfer market, it's in the trillions. We don't know if a person paying from Paris who may be selling carpets to a supplier in Kuala Lumpur, if that payment is actually being uh, a payment in disguise for a money transfer or is it a hawala settlement being done, no one knows. Uh, with the addition of cryptocurrencies, I'm sure this number has gone up. Does all this mean that it is bad or illegal? Well, you know, for some reason, people think that Hawala is so tainted. Hawala is simply a terminology or a transaction that is not documented. That is not documented. That's what it means. If you look a Bitcoin transfer from point A to point B, it's Hawala transaction. Uh, you know, strictly speaking, it's not documented. It's documented on the blockchain, but it's not recognized by the regulators. No one has a sense of how big the market is. I feel we can second guess, third guess, etc., but no one has a sense. Some will tell you it's 10%, someone will tell you it's 50%, someone will tell you it's 100%. I think it's based on geographies. If you look at Venezuela, I'm sure the inward remittance market informally is going to be two times or three times the official figure, if not ten times the official figure. Because uh, yeah. illegal remittances into Venezuela are subject to so much deduction. Uh, same thing would happen for Zimbabwe. Same thing would happen for Cuba. Same thing would happen for countries with very, very strict remit uh, you know, uh, capital controls. So I feel it, it, it's, it's a geography-dependent uh, question and an answer. And I feel no one knows about it, really. Yeah. I think one of the things that um, that I sort of always admired about the Havala system is in a very basic way, I think this concept where you move money without really moving money uh, is what the Havala system has managed to perfect in a way that you can charge a lot of fees to somebody. Um, but actually, the 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 foreign exchange never really happens. The settlement in the other country, very similar to the way the cash pickup system evolved, um, occurs through a whole other network. So you're not actually bearing this expensive cost of moving money, but you're able to capture a really high fee be because the transaction is undocumented and sort of done under some scrupulous um, uh, conditions. You know, one of the funny things about Hawala is it wasn't invented by the Arabs. It was invented by the Knight Templars, you know, the crusaders who would go to the Holy Land for pilgrimage. They would get, you know, uh, robbed and so forth. And the Knight Templars then started giving these very specific seals, which you could, you know, deposit your coins in, let's say, Paris and get them in Jerusalem. And that was the first Hawala system that actually came in. 
So another thing you may not know, Chinese were the original Hawala guys. They have something called flying money or flying cash. That you know the notes are very light and they could fly away, etc. But they, it's called Fikian, F-E-I-Q-I-A, and that was one of the first Hawala trades that was being done in the long Silk Route trades that they used to do. And then you know, obviously, this is during the uh, Tang Dynasty, I believe. Uh, but you know, there are so many different variants of how Hawala is done. And the parallel economy is, some could say or argue, is perhaps more bigger than the legalized economy even. And speaking of all these places, you know, let me make an announcement. You know, IMTC, which is the International Money Transfer Conference, they're having quite a year this year. So if you're going to be at IMTC Brazil, which is going to be happening in Sao Paulo uh, from the 21st to the 23rd of March, the Remtech Awards are coming to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. So IMTP, IMTC Malaysia is happening from 8th to 10th of May in 2018. And needless to say, we will be at the IMTC. We, as in around the coin, will be over there. Money on the Move will be there at IMTC in Brussels, Belgium, which is happening in 6th to 18th of May this year. So bring your shoes, we'll bring the chocolates, and we'll have a nice conversation there. Uh, are you coming with us, Malani, to IMDC, Emir? Shall we put your boss on the line and make him? You know? <laughs> this is one way to pressure him, for yeah. sure. <laughs> for sure, but, for um, sure. I hope to see you there. Okay, That's cool. All. Very good. But, uh, the, the, you know, we, we will talk about the Remtech Awards. I think they're very uh, important. And, you know, Hugo is doing a fantastic job. You know, so shout out to Hugo, you know, for uh, putting IMTC together. So, Faisal, now I want to talk to you about something um, that is always quoted in this industry as a bit, bit of a benchmark number that we're trying to constantly improve on, which is the cost of remittance. So, back in 2008, the cost of remittance on average around the world was 9.8%, which was a really high number. And when we say 9.8%, it means 9.8% on average of the principal value of the transfer probably given a transfer value of 150 to 200 US dollars, which is usually taken as the average amount that a migrant worker would transfer. Now, people may transfer more or less, and the fees will be more or less depending on that. Okay? Um, and then in Q1 2017, this number was then reported to be 7.45%. So it was touted as quite an achievement. The cost of remittance had come down quite a bit since 2008, but it was still a bit, there was a lot of discrepancy among regions. Till date, for example, APAC, because it um, accounts for 55% of remittances, let's just say, um, you know, India, China, Philippines, Pakistan, make up quite a bit um, of what is the global flow of remittances, uh, there's a lot of cost efficiencies because there's more competition on these routes. So they tend to have a lower cost of remittance, like 6.9% is what um, they were quoting on average in Q1 2017. Africa, on the other hand, which um, like we discussed a bit earlier, where the data isn't completely transparent or available to us, remains one of the most expensive uh, continents in the world to send money to. And even within that, I think South Africa, the sort of fees for sending money out of South Africa can be as high as 14% uh, when checked last year. Um, on average, though, at, in Q1 2017, um, for the continent of Africa, it was about 9%. So, 
I guess this really brings to question this whole idea around financial inclusion, around UN development goals. Uh, now that we know that, you know, remittances, actually two thirds of the remittances sent um, are sent for basic food and shelter, core human needs. Um, how does the industry plan to address the really high cost of remittances for the people that are sort of who are hurt the most by it? You know, I think whenever anyone mentions the cost of World Bank figures, uh, there are two primary places where they're mentioned. Number one, people mention 6.9, 6, 9, 8, and 10, and 12% when they're making their pitch documents in front of investors and they think, well, this is the damn problem. You know, it's charging too high for it and we will reduce that amount down to half. And that is one place where I hear that figure. The other place where I hear this figure is in conferences and when they say 7.45% or 6%, all the MTO owners who are in the rooms put their head back and roll their eyes and say, oh God, don't I wish this was the number. The numbers are, are not accurate. Yes, they're, you know, it assumes that $150 is that in the last 15 years, that's that's been the base mark, that $150 hasn't changed. The world has, you know, has had some upward mobility. $150 is not the average amount that is being sent. It's, it's moved up now, believe it or not. It's not th that anymore. Uh, people are sending more and more. But if you try to equate the cost of remittance on a smaller amount, it will yield to a higher percentage. If we were to do this with respect to $50, the number would be much higher because the world of money transfers not remittances, money transfers is not favorable to small value transfers. It's favorable to large value transfers. But when we start looking at the $500 figure, the $800 figure, the $1,000 figure, you will find that the cost of remittances are extremely low. Yes, there are certain corridors in Africa within the Pan-African space which are very, very expensive, but they are not actually the traditional remittance corridors. In some cases, there are, you know, but, but, not, but not traditionally. The cost of remittances are quite low. If you talk about, you know, six or seven percent, that certainly doesn't exist from, let's say, uh, the Middle East to India. Uh, you know, people would love to have five percent or four percent. It's gone down to a couple of basis points now, like 60 basis points, 40 basis points, 85 basis points. That is the margin on which they are operating. And you can do the math. I have a question for you. A how much money gets sent from United States to India? Billions, right? Yeah. And let's say the cost of remittance is 1%. Okay, so one, and, and let's say 10 billion goes and the cost of remittance is 1%, just 1%. And how much goes for money goes from United States to Burkina Faso? Hardly anything, right? And let's say the cost of, uh, of sending that money is uh, 15%. If you were to average the two out, the cost of remittance between the two countries, as per World Bank data, it would be 8%. 15 plus 1 is 16. 16 divided by the two countries is 8. 8% is the average. See, that's skewed data. What you don't have from this data is, or you don't understand is how much weightage is applied. India was a, you know, $10 billion. Burkina Faso could have been $5 million. $10 billion versus $5 million, you know, it clearly there is a difference. So the averages are not weighted averages, which is something that is missing. Now, World Bank does say this, yes, we can produce that, blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, that's not what people are seeing. People get 
mesmerized by seeing these figures. And these figures are not accurate. Governments are then chastised and, and, and reprimanded. And why, why is the cost of sending money so high? And they blame Western Union and MoneyGram and the other players. And there's a lot of false advertising behind this. There are a lot of false promises behind it. There are a lot of false you know, goals behind these numbers. So I, I feel that people need to stop quoting this number and look at a very, very specific industry equivalent uh, industry voluntarily reported numbers for each corridor. Right. I think there's um, there's another part to this that we discussed earlier, which is, you know, one part, as you mentioned, is you need to sort of look at a weighted average of these cost figures across corridors. But the second part is for a lot of the corridors that we are discussing, the ones that uh, that are not first-tier corridors in that sense, or second, third, fourth-tier corridors, as we mentioned earlier, we don't have perfect information. These numbers are not widely reported. Um, a lot of these transactions are happening informally. Uh, and as the market gets to that perfect information state, now with more and more players, um, especially digital MTO players coming into the market uh, that are able to capture the transactions, the fees associated with it, the effects, um, I'm hoping that in a couple of years from now, we really have a much more corridor by corridor accurate figure of what it actually costs to send money. Amen. That's what I will say, because I just heard a prayer. You know? <laughs> um, uh, but, let, but let's see, you know, I, I, the, the good thing is that a lot of people are now trying to educate that, you know, World Bank is not the only place. Though the Lee Pratha does, who's what I call the Oracle of Remittances, does a great, great, great job of putting these numbers out. But I feel that the governments who report numbers to him need to also provide more accurate description. They need to get more granular. We're just getting a, a number. We don't need a number. We need numbers with breakdowns. We need to understand that this is the number that Philippines gets from the United States. And this is the number Philippines gets from the United States, from Western Union, from MoneyGram, from the other players, so that we can really drill down and see some patterns. But then that's that's the one thing we don't see because they feel that if Western Union reports its numbers to Philippines, it, you know, they're giving up a competitive advantage, etc., etc. Uh, so let's see. Uh, you know, I, one can be hopeful, but um, I'm not going to be holding my breath on it. All right. All right. So I think that sort of concludes our segment on how challenging it is to really get a sense of the scale, the scope, and the costs in this industry, because the numbers that are out there today, as good as they are as proxy figures, uh, have quite a lot of challenges, um, and caution must be taken before you interpret them to make any high-level judgments on what the remittance industry is really worth and to whom. Absolutely, and I, and I feel people should be able to understand that, you know, they can get a sense of semblance that, we are working with very two-dimensional numbers and we're trying to make something 3D. It's not easy. And those numbers haven't changed over the last 20 years. You know, the, the, the reporting has still been very two-dimensional, if you will. And we are now in a 3D, 4D world, you know, stereo world, colorful world, high-definition world. And yet the signals we are getting are still very black and white, you know, uh, noise-filled uh, signals. So I hope somewhere down the line these numbers can be improved. The reporting can be improved. The Oracle sources can be better uh, vetted. And uh, hopefully it will, you know, do more justice to the industry. And on that note, Malani, thank you very much for this episode. And we'll speak to you soon. If you have any 
questions and or comments, please feel free to write to us. It's Faisal at AroundTheCoin.com. And hopefully we will have our Money on the Move um, email address up and running hopefully by next week. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Have you ever felt that your life has no meaning? Do you wake up in the morning dreading the day ahead? Do you feel lost? I'm Tanner Campbell, host of the podcast Practical Stoicism. Every Saturday morning, I explore the ancient texts of Stoicism and derive from them practical takeaways that anyone can implement to live a more contented and fulfilling life. Search your podcast listening app of choice for Practical Stoicism and join me each week to explore Stoicism practically and discover how it can help you live better.